welcome to Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and welcome to five ways to help your clients make tough decisions, and four common decision-making traps to avoid. Should I stay or should I go now? Should I stay or should I go now? If I go, there will be trouble, and if I stay, it will be double. So come on and let me know, should I stay or should I go? And those are lyrics from, you've guessed it, Should I Stay or Should I Go by The Clash. Now, Jason, a client of mine, was in despair. Should I stay or should I go, Mark? He asked me. What should I do? And I was careful to neither nod nor shake my head, but he wasn't watching me anyway. And he said, I've written all the reasons for and against leaving my wife. And Jason had that sort of glazed look of someone who spent too much time focused on the contents of their own mind. But there are as many reasons for staying as for going, he said. So I finally allowed myself a small nod of the head. If I stay, I feel like I'm missing out on the excitements of a single life. And I can relate to that, I thought. And then he said, and if I go, I'll feel guilty and I might regret the decision as I still love my wife dearly. And I could equally relate to that sentiment too. So he really was stuck at that point. You know, I don't know what to do, he said. How can we be sure whatever I decide is the right decision? Where's this we coming from? I found myself thinking. It wasn't my decision, obviously, although he seemed to want me to make it for him. One thing's for sure, though. Big decisions can cause big problems for our clients. Over-analysis equals decision paralysis. Too much thinking can really screw you up, if you've ever noticed that. Just thinking too much about stuff. The more you think, the more stuck you can feel. Of course, some things in life are black and white. This kind of decision is a no-brainer. When a juggernaut is speeding towards you and you jump out of the way, you've made a decision. You know unequivocally that you made the right decision. It wasn't hard. Likewise, when you feel really thirsty on a hot day, you don't have to agonize over whether having a drink is the right choice for you. These decisions require little, if any, actual thought. The right choice is clear. It doesn't even feel like a decision at all. But should you buy a car in silver or blue? Should you buy this house or that house? Should you go to the party or not? Should you marry or not? And if so, to whom? So many options. How do we make any decisions at all? The agony of indecision is a common problem. We all approach life's crossroads sometimes. There are paths, maybe many, to choose from. But which way to go? Straight ahead? left or right, up across the mountains or down into the ink-dark forests, which way lies safety? Which way will we find treasure and which way destruction? How do you make decisions? And how do you decide how to help your clients with their decision-making dilemmas? Jason seemed to want me to tell him what to do. And more than this, he wanted to magically know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that it was the 100% correct decision. 
And he almost wailed to me that he felt paralyzed by this. So much of life is ambiguous. Sometimes both decisions are right or wrong to differing degrees. Perhaps they both would have been right or wrong to some extent. Taking that job may have led to good things and not taking it may have led to other good things. This is an idea worth running by our agonized clients. It's not always that clear. Some people respond to decision-making like a rabbit paralyzed by the headlights of a fast car. Jason was driving himself to distraction or destruction through constant toxic rumination, something that is strongly correlated with the onset and maintenance of depression. See reference one in the written article. So here are a few ideas I presented to him to break the cycle. Step one, break down the absolutist thinking around the decision-making. The more depressed someone is or stressed they are, the more they communicate and think in absolute terms. Absolutism thrives on words like completely or utterly or totally or always or never. This kind of all-or-nothing thinking tends to be driven by emotion, see reference to, and shades of grey subtlety and flexibility diminish as emotion takes over. So we become less able to think in nuanced and subtle ways. Jason was being absolutist. What is the right decision? What is the wrong decision? I suggested that both decisions might be right. And this gave him pause for thought. How do you mean, he asked. Well, whichever decision you make, you'll make it work. And eventually, whatever decision you make will will work for your wife too. The question is how easily the decision you make will work. Trying to make the right decision assumes that life is always simple or even simplistic, can just be broken down into this is right and that is wrong. Sometimes there are no right decisions, only different decisions or alternative decisions. And this idea helped Jason relax a little. It changed his reference a bit. The next reframe I presented to Jason also helped him loosen up his thinking a bit. So step two, why wait for certainty? A trap when making decisions is to wait for absolute certainty. Jason, it seemed, wanted 100% empirical scientific proof that whatever decision he made was objectively the right decision. It was as though he wanted official government-stamped approval of whatever decision he made. Perfectionist types with simplistic ideas of right and wrong go for this approach. They don't feel as if uh, that it's reasonable to act on a decision while they still have any doubts about it at all. Okay, they're waiting for this state of mind in which suddenly it's completely clear that it's completely the right decision. They want that certificate to come through the letterbox telling them the right decision has been reached and officially approved. And of course, this doesn't happen. And when it doesn't happen, their minds go round and round in circles and they actually think too much. I suggested that sometimes we can never be sure we made the right decision, even decades later. All we can be sure of is that we made a decision. Jason's wife wasn't abusive or violent or unfaithful, factors that would have made any decision more clear-cut. In fact, Jason loved her deeply. 
and she loved him, it seems. The problem I suspected was that he was suffering from acute grass-is-always-greener syndrome. He might stay with his wife and never know whether that was the 100% correct decision at all, or he might leave his wife and likewise never be certain that that was right either. The fact is that no single decision makes everything perfect because we do not live in the realm of perfection. This seemed to strike Jason as a totally new idea. As with the first idea, it helped him relax just a little bit more. But to take even more pressure off, we can encourage the following. So step three, decide not to decide for a while. Pressure often builds when we feel we have to make a decision soon. But unless a decision date is forced upon us, we can sometimes decide to not decide, at least for now. We can defer the decision. Time does things to people. Often the missing ingredient to clarity is the passing of more time. Jason hadn't slept properly in weeks, and he'd been off his food, unable to focus at work. He felt panicky and pressured. But where was the pressure coming from? The pressure was coming from himself and him alone. I asked Jason if decision-making was something he struggled with generally. And he said, you bet it is. And it's getting worse. I can't even decide what drink to have in the pub, what to eat, where to take a walk. There are pros and cons to every decision. Okay. And this gave me a clue. When someone is panicking, it's essential to take pressure off. Jason was putting all the pressure on himself. I suggested Jason decide not to decide anything at all about his marriage for a period of three months. And during that time, we would work on improving his decision-making skills around the small things, okay, and stress management generally, and also his thinking patterns. And when he suddenly felt that he had three months of uh, uh, deferment, he visibly relaxed. He'd half wanted me to make the decision for him, to tell him what to do, but instead I had told him that he needn't, in fact, shouldn't make any decision for a while. Now that he was off the hook for a bit, his sleeping improved and he felt happier. And sometimes the decision to defer the decision can take a load off. But making good decisions isn't just about what we do, but also what we don't do. So step four, help your client avoid these four common decision-making mistakes. People wreak havoc with their mental health by worrying about what to do. And this can take all kinds of forms. So I use the following almost as a checklist when attempting to help clients who are suffering a crisis of decision-making. So the four most common traps are, number one, wanting too much certainty before acting. Okay, so this was something that I just talked about, really. He wanted that 100% sense that it was the absolute right decision. And that's unrealistic. Number two, making ambiguous decisions while highly emotional and distressed. So emotions do act as signals sometimes. Being miserable at work, for example, is a powerful signal, perhaps, that another kind of work might be better suited to you. But in general, for ambivalent, less clear-cut decisions, we need to calm things down. 
Emotional decisions are often easily recognized as mistaken decisions, but the emotional decider will rarely admit this. Instead, they will seek to back up their dodgy decision-making with emotional rationalizations, kidding themselves and sometimes other people. You know, for example, um, I've taken up with this violent psychopath because he's so good at helping my child with her history homework. Okay. So there's, I made this decision, um, and this is the reason why I think it was a good decision. That was rather extreme. Or I won't stop smoking just yet because so and so is still smoking, and if I stop now, it would upset her. Okay. Um, in a kind of cognitive dissonance, the decision maker refuses to acknowledge terrible decisions that are obvious to those around them. Three, believing a decision can only be valid if ratified by other people. This approach often comes out of fear of making an entirely independent decision. It may be a sign of reluctance to become fully adult and take responsibility for one's own life. In Jason's case, Jason seemed to want my approval for any decision he made, and also the approval of other people in his life. I asked him if he worried what others might think other than his wife, and he said that it tormented him constantly. So I suggested it was none of anyone else's business. Not really. Okay. And that it was his decision. Four, repeating the same mistakes because of failure to learn from the past. Of course, people rarely admit that they've failed to learn from their experiences. Have you ever heard anyone be that honest? Instead, they blame other people, lousy luck, feckless fate, misbehaving star signs, lax ley lines, a failure in familial support, shrinking ice caps or whatever, anything but their own part. Anything other than their own failure to learn from their or other people's mistakes. Once we own our decisions, we can own our mistakes. And the only shame in mistake making is to keep making the same ones throughout life and the failure to learn from mistakes. Jason had left a previous happy relationship because he wanted to be free, as he put it, and he'd regretted that for a long time. I didn't suggest he'd be wrong to do that again. I merely suggested that he may have learned something valuable from that previous decision. Life, bless it, is always trying to teach us something. And this made him pensive. Step five, trust your gut. For some decisions, an instinctive approach is better. When we relax, we're better placed to trust our subtle feelings rather than try to work it out as though it were some test paper problem. Unfortunately, Jason fitted into the latter category. He was constantly obsessing about what he should do, as if it was some kind of mathematical equation that he was trying to work out. Should he stay and make a go of his marriage? which was by no means a bad marriage, or should he leave and enjoy being single with the assumption of enjoyment? He'd repeatedly asked friends for advice, but ideally he wanted his wife to make the decision for him. And yes, he was open with her about his inner agonies. And this had not unexpectedly put huge pressures on her and their marriage as well. He just couldn't find the answer. The trouble was, that the problem he was trying to solve wasn't mathematical. He was treating the problem of what to do in his life as if it were algebra. 
He actually asked me, if X is the joy of the single life and Y is the guilt I feel for leaving my innocent wife, what is the product of X and Y? And that stumped me, but then maths was never my strong point. Jason seemed to feel that when he worked this out, hey presto, he would come up with a magic number, a solution. Then some encouraging teacher would come and tell him he was correct, and he'd know without a doubt that he'd found the solution. But research tells us that for many decisions, you're better off not thinking about it. Now, when we trust our unconscious mind, it seems that sometimes we can come up with a quicker and a better decision. Research published in Current Biology shows that in some instances, snap decisions are better than endless, pedantic, logic-based pondering. See reference three. Test subjects were asked to pick the odd one out on a screen covered with more than 650 identical symbols, including one rotated version of the same symbol. They performed better when they were given no time to linger and were forced to rely on their subconscious to select the correct answer. Dr. Lee Shapping of University College London said, you'd expect people to make better decisions when given time to look properly, but this was not so. The conscious, on top level function of the brain, when active, vetoes our initial subconscious decision, even when it's correct, leaving us unaware or distrustful of our instincts. So, thinking too much about a decision can leave us worse off, which in turn can freeze action. The famous Milton Erickson's injunction to trust your unconscious is now backed up by research. Your conscious, logical brain doesn't always make the best decisions. But does this apply to real decision-making, like buying a house or car, or even buying a shampoo? I think the secret is to not overthink. Researchers at the University of Amsterdam investigated this very question and found that thinking hard about what car to buy doesn't help you make the best choice. See reference four. So participants were asked to identify the best car of four, each with 12 desirable uh, attributes. Around 25% of participants selected the correct car, no more than you'd expect due to chance alone. The surprise came when the researchers distracted participants with puzzles before asking them to make their choice. So they'd they'd diverted their attention before asking them to make a decision. In this study, more than half managed to pick the best car, and they did this instinctively. So intuitively, they picked the better one when they had less time to think. Logical thought, of course, has its place in decision-making. Of course it does. But logic is a tool, and it's not the only tool in the toolbox. I spoke to Jason about this research and all of what I've talked about here. So what takeaways can we glean from all of this? So these are the um, quick pointers for good decision-making. Firstly, when making non-clear-cut decisions, perhaps ambiguous decisions, we need to, one, learn to trust our instincts and not always insist on logical reasons for everything. Learn to say, because it feels right. Two, 
resist the temptation to automatically go with greed-driven decisions because of strong emotion and then try to flatter ourselves with justifications and rationalizations after the event. Intuitive decision-making works best when the distorting effects of emotion are kept to a minimum. I really focused on helping Jason calm right down. Three, when we do base decision-making on weighing up the pros and cons, we can then use our imagination to explore what those different realities might feel like in the future. We can really sit down and envisage living with those decisions. How does it feel? What does life look like? Four, remember that some decisions won't make sense to other people and that may be okay. Most medical advances, open heart surgery for one, see reference five, were instigated by people who decided to follow what seemed like crazy ideas to other people at the time. Five, not beat ourselves up if we do make a wrong decision. We can learn from it, and hey, we're only human. But as far as possible, we, we need to avoid repeating our mistakes from the past. We need to learn from our lives. So the upshot with Jason. Well, after three months of learning to go with spontaneous decision-making over small stuff, I finally asked him about his marriage. And for a second, he looked confused and then he laughed. And he said, you know, I haven't really been thinking about that lately, but we've been getting along great. And I guess I've made my decision without realizing it. I love her. I'm going to make it up to her. And with that, he decided he didn't need to see me anymore. And as he left, he smiled and he said, I'm going to make a go of it. So I hope you found that useful. I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. And if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can find it over at unk.com slash blog. That's unk.com slash blog. (laughs) 